Hello, this is Meet the Writers. I'm Georgina Godwin. My guest today is the author of 10 books, Rebel Cinderella, From Rags to Riches to Radical, the epic journey of Rose Pastor Stokes is his most recent. Spain in Our Hearts, Americans in the Spanish Civil War, 1936 to 1939, appeared in 2016. Of his earlier books, Bury the Chains, Prophets and Rebels in the Fight to Free an Empire's Slaves, won the Los Angeles Times Book Prize, the Penn USA Literary Award, the Gold Medal of the California Book Awards and was a finalist for the National Book Award. King Leopold's Ghost, a story of greed, terror and heroism in colonial Africa and To End All Wars, a story of loyalty and rebellion, were both finalists for the National Book Critics Circle Award. His Finding the Trapdoor, Essays, Portraits, Travels and the more recent Lessons from a Dark Time and other essays collect some of the articles he's done in a lifetime of writing for newspapers and magazines. Earlier in his career, he was a reporter for the San Francisco Chronicle, a commentator on National Public Radio's All Things Considered and a co-founder, editor and writer at Mother Jones magazine. He's received the Theodore Roosevelt Woodrow Wilson Award from the American Historical Association and, in 2014, was elected a Fellow of the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. I am speaking, of course, of Adam Hochschild. Adam, welcome to Meet the Writers. Thank you, Georgina. It's good to be with you. It's really, really good to be with you. As I, I think, explained to you before we came on air, your book, King Leopold's Ghost, was absolutely formative in my political and literary education. And so it's an absolute thrill for me to speak to you. You were born in, in New York to a father who was of German-Jewish descent and a Protestant mother. And you've actually written about this and about your relationship with him in a book that's I suppose you would call it your autobiography. It's actually a memoir of my relationship with my father. It's not a full autobiography. I'm not sure my full autobiography would be of interest to people, but it was, I had a somewhat difficult relationship with my father that finally resolved itself. I think, uh, you know, one can somewhat predict, you know, a man who was an executive of a multinational mining corporation, having a son who turned out to be a radical journalist There were some tensions in the relationship, but we worked them out slowly. And the book is Half the Way Home, A Memoir of Father and Son, which was my first book. And I think the one that I would most hope would survive me is about that relationship. Because it was a pretty privileged childhood. It was extremely privileged. And I think it was the very fact of that privilege that let me see something about how the world worked. My father worked for a mining company that at the time I was growing up, most of its investments were in mines in Central Africa and what is today Zambia. And when I was a teenager, he made what may have been the mistake of taking me with him on a business trip to Africa once. And I began to realize that the labor of African miners working far under the earth in hot, damp, dangerous conditions was what was paying for my very comfortable life at home, for my university education, and for many other things as well. And that was my introduction to the enormous inequalities in today's world. 
I don't want to be too hard on my father because to give him credit, he was a man who was himself aware of many of these things as well and had a sense of politics that was unusually liberal for somebody who was an American corporate executive of his time. And in the issue that most divided his generation from mine when I was coming of age in the 1960s, the Vietnam War, we were on the same side. We were both ardently opposed to the war. And the American president at that time, Richard Nixon, actually it was revealed during the Watergate hearings, maintained an enemies list of people that the FBI was instructed to gather dirt on and so forth. And my father was on Nixon's enemies list and was quite proud to be there. You also had a very colourful uncle. He was a pioneer aviator. My very staid, respectable aunt, who had absolutely no love life that anybody had ever known about up to that point, much to the shock of her two brothers, married a remarkable man who had been a fighter pilot in the Imperial Russian Air Force in World War I, then had fought on the losing side in the Russian Civil War, come to the United States and gone to work as chief test pilot for his former schoolmate in Russia, Igor Sikorsky. And one day he flew his plane down from the sky, met my aunt, they married some years later. And I grew up in this remarkable household because we shared a house with them in the summertime where our half of the household was my parents and their friends who came for visits on weekends. The other half was my Russian uncle Boris and his friends who were all emigre Russians dukes and counts and generals under the old regime, talking about the good old days under the czar, but wonderful people, politics to the right of Genghis Khan, I'm sure, (laughs) but extraordinary, uh, wonderful, lively, zestful human beings, as was my uncle himself, who, you know, went on after being Sikorsky's chief test pilot. He worked for the uh, U.S. military during World War II, flew some of the German jets, the first jet fighters that had been captured at the end of the war to test them out. And then while I was growing up, ran an air charter business. A lovely man. And you can see the seeds of all those childhood relationships come to fruition in the books that you'd go on to write later. So we've got minerals in Central Africa, we've got Southern African politics, we've got Russia and its history. But of course, as you say, you came of age in the tumultuous 1960s. You opposed the Vietnam War. I wonder, were you a hippie? Did you drop out? Did you protest? Not at all, really. I certainly protested, but I never let my hair grow long. I never learned to play in a rock band. I never took large quantities of drugs. I was a political rebel, though. I graduated from college at a time when suddenly young men of my age were faced with the question of, are you going to go fight in this terrible war in Vietnam or not? Because there was a draft in the U.S., so you had to sort of take a stand on the war. Also, the civil rights movement was just starting up again in a big way. When I was in college, some of the uh, older students were going off as freedom riders into the South. A year after I graduated from university, my then girlfriend, now wife, and I were briefly civil rights workers in Mississippi during the summer of 1964, when a thousand or so volunteers from other parts of the country came down there to work as civil rights workers to try to focus the country's attention on the enormous injustices in the American South. 
and three of our comrades were murdered that summer. So I sort of grew up in the, the thick of all these things and was deeply involved in the movement against the Vietnam War. Later on, under the Freedom of Information Act, I was able to get the records on me kept by the FBI, the CIA, and military intelligence. And I'm proud to say that they had more than 100 pages of records about me. I was very small fry in this movement, but it was a formative thing. Now, I know that you spent a college summer working for an anti-government newspaper in South Africa, but also in 1990, you produced a book about this. So tell us about this book, which looks at the uh, 19th century Battle of Blood River and also at what happened 150 years later. Yes, here's what happened there. Uh, Summer when I was in college, I had a job working for an anti-apartheid newspaper in South Africa. This was the summer of 1962. I was actually in the country when Nelson Mandela was arrested and began his more than 27 years in prison. And it was a deeply formative experience for me. It was the first time I'd been someplace where politics was really a serious business. It was not a matter of disagreeing with somebody about something over a dinner table, the choices you made determined whether you stayed free, went to prison. I got to know a number of people, anti-apartheid activists who had spent time in prison or who subsequently went there. One man I got to know fairly well was later hanged. It changed my attitude about a lot of things because I began to realize that the United States was on the wrong side in that struggle. The U.S. government had military relations with the South African government, was trading intelligence information. When I came back to the U.S., uh, I was a changed person. It gave me a deep interest in South Africa. I returned there a number of times as a journalist to do magazine pieces. And then when I wanted to do a book, I went back in 1988 for a particular reason, which was that that year was the 150th anniversary of something called the Battle of Blood River, which in 1838 had been the struggle that basically determined whether the Boers or the Zulus were going to run that part of the world. And it showed that a relatively small number of people with rifles could overpower a far larger number of people armed only with shields and spears. That Battle of Blood River has always been celebrated with tremendous fervor by the Afrikaans-speaking whites of South Africa, the Afrikaners. The 100th anniversary had been an enormous affair, and I knew the 150th would be as well. So the book I wrote about South Africa, The Mirror at Midnight, was partly historical with one thread of the narrative tracing the events that led up to this Battle of Blood River in 1838. The other thread of the narrative reportage, me going around the country in 1988, talking to people, interviewing people, seeing things in places that had figured in the history of that time, and ending up at a pageant-like reenactment of the battle put on by a neo-Nazi group on the 150th anniversary. And the book was published in 1990, The Mirror at Midnight. And I've been back to South Africa a number of times since then to write more articles and to see what's happened in the country since the big change. And what is your opinion of what's happening there now? Well, whatever the flaws, and there are a great many of today's South African government, it's a huge change from the apartheid years. However, 
you know, at last everybody can vote. However, it's a government that is deeply threaded through with corruption. They're in struggle right now, I think, over whether they're really going to have an independent judiciary that can get to the root of that corruption. There's some reasons for optimism about that. But, you know, it's similar problems that exist in other countries in Africa and other parts of the world. People get political power. They use it to amass economic power. We see the same thing in other countries in Africa. We see it in Russia. We see it in Ukraine. It's been a huge problem in South Africa. Nonetheless, I think there is reasons for hope that they can maintain an independent judiciary and get on top of some of these problems. It won't be easy. It won't be quick. It won't be total. But I'm something of an optimist where South Africa is concerned. Now, you mentioned Russia there, and of course you had that Russian influence in your childhood. And so your next book was uh, all about Stalin, really, and his legacy on Russia. We think about 20 million people died during his reign of terror. And so you went back after Glasnost. You spent six months there talking to Gulag survivors. And I just wonder if you see an echo now of what happened then. I do. I do. I wish I didn't, but I really do. I'd always been fascinated with the Stalin period in Russian history, this enormous, tragic country which gave us Tolstoy and Chekhov, but also gave us the Gulag. You know, the Soviet Union did a sort of self-inflicted genocide to itself during the 1930s and 40s with millions and millions of people shot by firing squads or swallowed up into the Gulag. I had been there a number of times as a journalist to write magazine pieces. I wanted to go back longer and do a book. And when Gorbachev came to power in the late 1980s, suddenly people were able to talk about this kind of thing openly for the first time and to dig up mass graves and to figure out maybe we need a new way of teaching history in the schools rather than just using the party line. So I want to see that and talk to people. And I did. I spent six months there. I had tremendous luck in that I arrived there, my very tolerant family and I, in Moscow in January 1990, which turned out to be the very month that they lifted all the restrictions on where Westerners could travel. So several times I had the experience of going someplace where I was the first American or Western European that people had ever seen. You can't have that experience in most of the world these days. It was a time of some optimism because even though the economy was collapsing, there was free discussion for the first time. People could literally dig up mass graves. And I saw several of those sites. They could revise the way they taught history in the schools. They could interview and publish interviews and publish memoirs having to do with gulag survivors, talking about all this. And everybody hoped, and I hoped, that getting all this stuff on the historical record would ensure that nothing like it was ever going to happen again. However, we were too optimistic, and the country, I think, has regressed in many ways to the kind of totalitarian state it was in the 1930s, where all dissent against Putin's terrible war in Ukraine, for instance, all dissent, open dissent is forbidden. You know, people can go to prison for questioning the war, even for calling it a war instead of a special military operation. 
So I'm afraid that the long experience of tyranny that Russians have had first under the czars and then in a much more severe way under the Soviets has left too little of a spirit of wanting to question things, wanting not to do what the authorities say. And of course, the chaos that followed the collapse of communism empowered this new class of oligarchs who have looted the country to an enormous extent and stored so much of that wealth abroad. Well, let's talk about another looter. This time we're going back in history, and I'm referring here to King Leopold's ghost. Very few people have not heard of this outstanding piece of literature. It is, of course, about the Democratic Republic of the Congo, or the Congo as it was then, which was owned by the Belgian king. It, I think, is the second largest country in Africa, the 11th largest in the world. It's right in the middle of Africa. It borders, what is it, nine other countries. And everything that's happened in this incredibly mineral-rich place has had a knock-on effect, I believe, across the continent. For those who haven't read the book, I wonder if you'd just outline it and tell us about some of those terrible atrocities that you write about in a way that absolutely brings them alive. Well, here's the story. In the 1870s and 1880s, the scramble for Africa began. This was the attempt by European countries to seize as much of that continent as they could as colonies for themselves. At the beginning of the scramble, around 1870, 80% of Africa, and I'm talking about Africa south of the Sahara, in that portion of Africa, 80% of it was under indigenous rulers, kings, chiefs, so on, of one sort or another. By 35 years later, virtually all of it, with one or two exceptions, like Ethiopia and Liberia, were European colonies or protectorates or colonies controlled by white settlers like South Africa. So it was a very rapid process, the biggest and fastest land grab in history, Somebody who wanted to get in on that process at the beginning was King Leopold II of Belgium, who had taken the Belgian throne in 1865, found himself very frustrated at being king of such a small country, and moreover at being king when it wasn't so much fun to be a monarch in Europe anymore because you had to contend with politics, with parliaments and voters and so forth. He wanted a part of the world where he could reign supreme. He wanted a colony. He hired the British explorer, Henry Morton Stanley, to stake out this vast territory in the center of the continent for him. And he bamboozled all the major nations of the world, beginning with the United States, to recognize it as belonging to him personally, the world's largest and only really privately owned colony the territory that today has approximately the same boundaries as the Democratic Republic of Congo. From 1885 on to 1908, 23 years, this was in Leopold's private colony. He made an immense fortune from it during that time, chiefly from wild rubber. There was a rubber boom starting in the 1990s, They'd invented the inflatable bicycle tire. They'd invented the automobile. There was a huge demand for rubber to coat telephone and telegraph wires. But planting a plantation of rubber trees was a slow process because they took about 15 years to grow to maturity. But the people who could really make money were those who owned land where rubber grew wild. 
and it grew wild in the great Central African rainforest, which covered about half of King Leopold's Congo. He essentially turned the male population of that territory into forced laborers, making them go out into the rainforest for days and sometimes weeks out of each month to gather a monthly quota of wild rubber. And he did this by sending his private army into village after village, holding the women of the village hostage, and you can see pictures of them in chains, in order to force the men to go into the rainforest and gather this wild rubber. It made him a fortune, estimated at well over a billion in today's American dollars. And it was devastating for the country because the forced labor system and its knock-on effects reduced the population of that territory by about 10 million people. People were worked to death, people became half starving and succumbed to diseases that they otherwise would have survived. And when you have men turned into forced laborers and being worked to death and women chained up as hostages, people stop having children. So from all these effects, plus rebellions against the regime that were ruthlessly put down, the population of the territory, it's estimated, shrank by about 10 million people over the course of 40 years. I mean, it's just extraordinary. And the level of cruelty and the atrocities that were committed. I mean, you you don't spare us this. And one comes away from that book really traumatised, obviously not half as traumatised as the people who had to live through it. How did it come to an end? Well, what happened was the atrocities there became the target of a worldwide human rights movement centered in Britain, but spread, you know, people gave protest lectures and slideshows as far afield as Australia and New Zealand, quite a lot in the United States, targeting this forced labor regime. All this international hoopla finally forced King Leopold to give up the Congo as his private colony, and it then became the Belgian Congo. He made Belgium pay him for it to take it over. The Belgians maintained the forced labor system because it was so profitable until the price of rubber dropped abruptly. And then in the 1920s, they began to realize that if they continued the forced labor system in the way that it had been going, their population would shrink still more and there would be no labor force left. And you can actually find them saying this on paper. At that point, they moderated the system, they introduced much more health care, elementary education, things became considerably better for the people living there. Although the economy, not just of the Belgian Congo, but of all of colonial Africa, remained largely based on forced labor really up until World War II. Now, of course, the Katanga region in the Congo is hugely mineral rich. And that really was the next wave of of the new scramble for Africa, if you like. And there are still Belgian companies involved in mining there. And indeed, if you look at what happened in the 60s, when you look at Doug Hammarskjöld, the whole murder of Patrice Lumumba, all of that was to do with control of those minerals. That's right. The Congo, I think, today is probably on a the basis of per square mile or per square kilometer or whatever, the most mineral-rich territory on Earth. They've got everything, you know, uranium, copper, gold, diamonds, coltan, cobalt, and some of these rare earth minerals that are extremely important in the manufacture of computers and cell phones and so forth, like coltan and cobalt. Those are in all of the electronic devices that we use every day. 
the territory continues to be exploited ruthlessly. The exploiters these days are more and more likely to be Chinese companies. The Chinese have moved in in a big way in Africa, promising local politicians to build this or that road or, or railway or whatever in return for long-range mineral concessions. It remains a very exploited country. And I've had Congolese friends tell me, you know, we wouldn't have so many troubles if we weren't so rich. It's always a dangerous thing, I think, when you have enormously valuable natural resources existing in a territory that has a weak or dysfunctional government. It almost inevitably means they get exploited ruthlessly. I mean, the country might be rich, but it certainly hasn't trickled down to most of the population. I wonder where the money from Leopold's time went, because actually when you look at the royal family in Belgium right now, and in fact, the uh, Belgian king is just making a visit to Congo as we speak to apologise, I believe, but he's one of the poorest royals in Europe. Where did the money go? Well, a lot of it went to building big show projects in Belgium. Anybody who's visited Brussels knows the Arcade du Centenaire, that huge archway in the middle of the city. That was built with Congo profits, as were enlargements of the royal palace at Lachen on the outskirts of Brussels, as were the world's largest privately owned greenhouses there, many other stadiums and monuments and similar things around Belgium. You know, the details on the royal family's finances are further obscured by the fact that the Germans occupied Belgium during both world wars. I don't know whether we really know the full story of how much money remains within the Belgian royal family today, but I would bet it is still fairly considerable. And a lot of the profits were shared by people who worked for Leopold's regime. You can find castles and grand houses and so forth in various parts of Belgium that were built by people who were executives of this or that Congo railway or steamship line or whatever. Now, of course, you've also written in Bury the Chains, the history of the campaign to abolish slavery in the British Empire. We don't have a lot of time left, but I wonder, looking at that and looking at the Belgian king's moves right now, do you think that reparations should be paid by these colonial powers? What can be done to right those wrongs? Yes, I do think we need to think about reparations. Exactly how to do it is a tricky and complicated problem, all the more so when we have, as I mentioned, you know, weak and corrupt regimes in so many countries in the world's south. Not that we're without <laughs> corrupt regimes in the world's north as well, but there are models for how to do this. You know, Germany has paid reparations to Israel for the Jews who who died in the Holocaust. Germany also has paid reparations, although they always take care not to call it reparations because that opens the door for further legal claims. But Germany has agreed to pay more than a billion dollars, the equivalent of more than a billion dollars, to Namibia, which was formerly a German colony many years ago before World War I, where the Germans carried out a notorious genocide that was in many ways a sort of dress rehearsal for the Holocaust. So I think we need to find ways of using payments to right some of those historical wrongs, because so much of the prosperity of the world's north had its origin in the exploitation Mm -hmm. of the world's south through colonialism, through slavery and the slave trade, 
and through the kind of economic arrangements that continue in today's world, where the world economy is basically arranged for the benefit of multinational corporations rather than for the benefit of people in poorer countries. Adam Hoekschild, it's been an absolute pleasure to talk to you. Your most recent book is called Rebel Cinderella, From Rags to Riches to Radical, The Epic Journey of Rose Pastor Stokes. That's all about an immigrant sweatshop worker who married an heir to a great fortune and became a radical social and feminist campaigner. That book and all of Adam's work, widely available, and some of it into many, many reprints. You've been listening to Meet the Writers, thanks to the production team of Nora Hall and Lillian Fawcett. You can download this show and previous episodes from our website or app, from SoundCloud, Mixcloud or iTunes. I'm Georgina Godwin. Thank you for listening.